Psalm 62. In my Bible, it says this, my soul waits for God alone. And I'm just going to shift that and then I'm going to leave it and forget it, I suppose. It says to the choir master, according to Jiduthun, it's a great name, uh, a psalm of David. Uh, Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence, uh, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Uh, They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my right mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, sailor. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Put no no trust in exhortation. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If your riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render to a man according uh, to his work. Uh, If you are a visitor, uh, we are just going through the book of Psalms. We're in the middle uh, section. And uh, we will stop that at the end of the summer, take a break uh, and go. We're going to do a series on people who met with Jesus Uh, So we'll come back to the Psalms uh, a little bit later. Uh, We're actually going to look at Psalm 62 this morning, which is a good job because I read it. And uh, it shows us the the fruits of adversity, or actually to say it right, that God in his wisdom and grace brings forth spiritual fruit in our lives through adversity. Now, adversity, as you know it in itself does not produce fruit. You will have known people, you would have known friends and family that actually have left churches and have left their faith and have become bitter uh, and hardened and cynical by adversity. So we mustn't just say, bring on adversity, it makes me more godlike. But you will have also known friends who have pressed through adversity, who have gone through extraordinary things and that their relationship with Jesus has deepened. So what is the difference? The answer is this, the work of God's Spirit in their heart. And that through their adversity, what happens is they allow God's Spirit 
uh, to speak to them. And it's almost as if, although this is difficult, that spirit is like a, a hammer on the anvil that sort of hammers out their character. They sort of say, okay, Lord, I, I don't understand this. This is, this is extraordinary. That's good. But now, Lord, what are you saying to me? How do you want to shape me? Spirit of God, you come upon me. You affect me. And it's almost as if in that process they are reshaped. And this psalm shows us that God's Spirit does mean to craft us through adversity. That God's Spirit, that's part of us. That we are actually uh, on the anvil in adversity. We are being shaped. Now I want you to note that this, how this psalm moves. It moves from a, a specific problem... David uh, has trouble again in this psalm. In fact, uh, you can tell that the trouble is not over. Where In verse 3, where it says, How long will you attack a, a man to batter him? It's a lovely isn't it, description of, of what is going on. Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. How long will you do this for? Now that's a cry that probably all of you have known, me included. How long? And he moves from... Uh, this, his situation of trouble, to reflect on God, uh, to, if you like, self-exhortation. And he starts exhorting himself with Scripture, and he starts exhorting himself with his knowledge of God, and then he moves to exhort us. You'll see that there in the psalm. So the movement is from David's situation to David to us, and, and that's the journey that he takes. He is, he is convincing himself of God and what God can do, not only in his life, but in your life. It's, it's mad, isn't it, that when you read Psalm 62, that actually David, whom you will meet, is speaking to you. We know that. Well, all scriptures God breathed. No, David wrote this for me and you. That was the purpose of it. <coughs> There are things that you should know to be true about God, and there are things that you begin to wonder about it, don't they? That's what happens in adversity. We begin to wonder, is God really like this? And this is the process that David is going through. So he tries, and he says, I'm going to convince myself about these things. Then I'm going to convince you. He turns to you and me, and he says, now you lot. Believe in God. <laughs> That's how he, how he does it. You trust in God. You pray to God. You run to God. And then there's the final part of the, of the story and uh, uh, of, the, of all of these things, and it's David's reflection, which we will come to at the very end. So this psalm is about our a Christian experience, our hope in God, and uh, it's not just our hope in God, but it's asking the question, is God your sole hope in God? Is he, the, is he the sole hope for you? Now, what do I mean? Is that S-O-U-L or S-O-L-E? Is he the sole hope? Well, actually, I think it's probably both. Because the psalmist wants to emphasize that God is his only hope. And that's something we have to settle in our hearts. Is God my sole hope? Is he the one? But also, 
He's our soul hope. He's the one that brings hope into our soul as well. And he emphasizes that, doesn't he? You know, do we allow God in so that he gets into the depth of our being? Is he in there? Is he really in there? Does he move you, affect you, get through to your thinking? When you're thinking about different things, does God press in you? No, I mustn't think like that. No, I mustn't do that because God is in there. So that situations that you and I face, he is in the soul, as it were, of our very being. Has he come to rest in your soul so that circumstances are dictated by him and how we are. So when we see, he says, in the, the psalmist goes on and says, this in regard to not only our soul help, he's the our only help, but is he in the soul? So you can see that the psalmist then says, God is our rock. God is our rock. He's our, quote the hymn writer, rock of ages. Actually, he says in this psalm, he is my only rock where he answers that sort of question. He is my fortress. And that's something we have to get into our being. He's my, he's my only help, and he affects my soul. More than that, this psalm is very interesting because it does not address God in a petition. That is actually unusual because most of the psalms address God at some point with a petition, a, a prayer request, and this psalm actually doesn't. Well, some theologians say that it might do right at the very end. Um, and that's why it says right at the very end, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Is that a, peti- a petition? Is it a request? It's entirely up to you. You can argue that over lunch. But, so uh, it, it just does. But you know, that's the only time that, is, that we seem David say, O oh Lord, steadfast love. Is that worship? Is that a petition? Ah, it, we, we don't know. It's the only time when the Lord is actually directly addressed in this psalm. In fact, much of the psalm finds its way in speaking to David himself and us. But actually... In David speaking to himself and speaking to us, it is about God. And it is actually a petition uh, in itself. So what I want to do is just sort of uh, look at that psalm in three parts, very uh, simply. And I want you you to take it from the point of adversity. Because here's the truth, folks. Adversity is round the corner. Fallen world, uh, fallen people, fallen church, fallen pastor, fallen wife, fallen husband, fallen children, uh, fallen university, fallen workplace, all that sort of stuff. Therefore, you might as well just say, it stinks, okay? And because it stinks, you're going to have to know how to cope when it stinks. So just draw a line and say, life sucks, okay? And this is how you're going to overcome when life sucks. Okay, so don't just say, you know, oh, it's bound to be, because it is true, isn't it? That what people go, oh, it's a wonderful, you know, I'm in a whale of a time. God bless me at Borderlands and Monday. Look, Monday will always be Monday. Why are you Facebooking about Monday? It always will be naff. Just live with it. Mondays, naff. Tuesdays, naff. 
Wednesdays, naff. Life is naff. Now, what we're going to do is know how to deal with naffness. This is what this psalm is about. Okay, so just settle in it in your heart. The only time that, that life will be better than this is heaven. Okay, so just settle it, please. Okay, so here we go. I don't, it's slow, this, isn't it? A declaration and trust in an all-powerful God. Let's begin with verses 1 to 4, where we see uh, this silent hope in a sovereign God, a declaration of trust in a powerful God. The title's interesting, isn't it? The psalm is dedicated to or given over to the choir master who has written a tune to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, whoever he was. Now, we know that Jeduthun was um, a, a Merite Levite, who was one of the three main Levites in the Davidic time that was involved in worship uh, in Jerusalem, the central worship of the people of God. And he seems to have wrote, have written some music, uh, uh, or even directed a choir, we don't know, uh, but what we do know is that, that David wrote the psalm and this fella wrote the music. So it can happen like that. It's sort of like, I don't know whether you've ever seen this, using, the, using the, the theme of rocks and all that sort of stuff. If you look at things like Rock of Ages, August M. Top Lady, 1776, music by Thomas Hastings, 1830, it would be something like this. It would be something like words, Steve Hawkins, uh, music, Phil Harmon. That's where we are. Now, it is true to say that when Steve said to us this morning that you may have something that you might bring, you may be a top lady or a Hastings, but actually the whole things fit together. And you need to see that. It isn't, oh my goodness, no, my thing. No, this is, this is wonderful teamwork in the presence of God. There's somebody hearing from God and saying, I've just got, can you imagine that? They turned up and said, I've just got a tune will whistle it. Well, until they actually send out this tune, they don't get the word. So who got the word? Did David get the words and he put the tune? Or did somebody get the tune? It was a work of God. It was a huge work of God. So come on, guys. You know, you, you might just be the tune person or the words person, but here we are. And that's nothing to do with the sermon. So David is in trouble again. Isn't that reassuring? God, how many times do I get myself into trouble Every psalm seems to be, get David into trouble. The psalm doesn't tell us enough to know when or where he's in trouble, but he's just in trouble. So I just think, thank you, that, that, uh, that I am not as bad as David. <laughs> no, that's not true. I am worse, but I just is in trouble. And he's surrounded by his enemies. He's seeing men in high places. Um, they're committing injustice. He's seeing men of both lowly and high rank engage in evil. They are actually toppling people. They're oppressing others. They are stealing. And David is oppressed by that, as you and I would be. And in the middle of that, in the middle of oppression, in the middle of feeling that people from, from the, if you like, the low parts of life and the high parts of life are squeezing him personally, he suddenly declares, my soul waits in silence. From him comes salvation. 
a silent hope in God. David, in the depths of his being, silently puts his hope in God. Surrounded by his enemies. But here's the interesting thing. He does not murmur and he does not complain against the Lord. This is what the silence is about. He does not murmur and he does not complain about the people of God that are around him. That's what he doesn't do. But he trusts in God. So he basically says this, I'm not going to have a moan here. Not going to do that. And he says in verse 1, from him comes my salvation. So David is saying, I believe that God can save me and rescue him. And after announcing that salvation from, from God that comes that way, he meditates on the character of God. And he says three things that help him not to murmur, not to groan. And his first thing is that God is a rock. The second thing is that God is a salvation. And the third thing is that God is his fortress. Now these are extraordinary images. But if you moan, if you grumble, if you blame God and blame everybody else, you will lose these images that will rescue you and save you. It's interesting that we live in a day... Uh, where the idea of God is a little bit strange. And some, even uh, songs that we sing in the, 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 the songs that we sing today are a little bit misleading. But there's one thing that we say, you're the rock I cling to. Now I just want to explain this, that when we're singing that, sort of, this is not the imagery that David is using. And that's made everybody go... And it's made Phil Harmon scrub it out of his list. Because what is the point of clinging to a little rock when you are surrounded by your enemies? The, end of the, the rock, the people are going to go like this. are going to go, there's a strange bloke hanging on to a little bit of a rock. And what is he doing? He's clinging to a rock. Well, we just kill him on the rock then, shall we? And we can say, you're, you're the one I cling to and that sort of stuff. Let me try and explain to you. When David, the, when David thinks of rocks, he thinks of massive rocks in the deserts. That's the sort of rock he's, he's thinking of huge, gigantic things that stand in the desert. So when then the enemies come to do, he can sort of just do this business. It's this rock that he hides behind that brings him salvation. It's not this little thing. The enemies will go, I'll just cling here. Hold on here. No, they're here. It's not that sort of thing. It's this massive thing that he can go and hide behind so that his enemies... And now you understand what when we say, look, Jesus is our rock. We can, what does the Bible say? Hide in him. I'm hidden with Christ in God. That's the expression. I can stand by the, behind this rock and my enemies cannot see me. That's the impression. Right? That's changed the worship list. Secondly, thirdly, secondly and thirdly, it is his salvation. He's behind the rock 
And not only is he saying, this rock is hiding me, he's actually saying, this rock can save me. This is not an inactive, inert rock, which is what we can think. I'll just stand behind the rock. I'll just, I'll just stand in the shadow, lovely in the shadow from the heat of the... No, that is not the type of rock. Because we sort of think, no, rock and all this is... A... No, this rock is one dangerous rock. When I was little, I don't know whether you ever had these comics. In, in my comic book, I used to have, that when you went down and you got your little pocket money, there was, a, there, was a, there was like one of these strange American things where there was like a rock man. Did you ever see him? Don't know. If you're nodding, you're old. And, and, that's, and he came... And this, this was sort of like, his arms were made of great big rocks and that sort of thing. Now, I want you to imagine then that this is the rock that we're facing. This is the rock that can rise up and, f- and face his enemies. This is not just a rock in the desert that hides me. This is a rock that can say, oh, come on. This is a rock that moves towards his enemies. And we can sort of have that little inert, nice little rocky, clingy thing. Now this, this is a rock that can come out and advance. That's when we think of rocks, we sort of think, no, it's nice, nice imagery. Forget the imagery. This is a rock who is alive. Can you imagine if you were the enemy that the rock starts moving towards you? Would you not run? Of course you would. So this is the imagery of it. This is a rock that moves. This is a rock that advances. That's why I can say that this is my salvation. This rock can save me. Not only that, this rock is like a fortress. That is great, isn't it? You can stand on this and nothing can get to you. This is the, the wonderful sort of imagery that we get. Yet you look at these verses and he has his eye on the wickedness and treachery that are around him. Look at this. How long will you attack a man and batter him? How long are you going to do this for then? Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. The picture is sort of like um, evil men that are there to take somebody down. Now I think that you and I know that there are evil men that will take you down. There just are. There are evil men that will apply pressure and you know the consequence of that pressure is that you will feel like a a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Yeah? What is the difference here? The difference is simply this, that the evil person sees weakness and pushes them over. That's what happens. It pushes a leaning wall. It sees a, t- uh, a, a, a tottering fence. Says, Let's just push that. Let's see. Let's break that. And you and I know people, don't we, where, where their spirits have just been broken. They've just been pushed over the edge. Just, just do that. And you and I know sometimes in our ordinary circumstances of life, we just thought, hello, I, I, you know, this is... This is a bit tottery here. You see, evil is attracted to weakness. Not to help it, but to destroy it. It takes advantage. It tramples over over it. Perhaps you understand that. Perhaps you've walked that. And yet, in this context, we see the foes. And he says... I will wait in silence to my God. What does it mean to wait in silence when that is going on? 
It means that we will unmurmur, if that's a word. It means that we will unmoan. It means that we will be ungrumbling. It means that what I will do is, even though this is going on around me, I will submit myself to the sovereignty and to the will of God and not this situation. Now, how do I know that that works? You've only to look at Israel and ask yourself this question. What happened to them when they moaned? They stayed in the desert a little bit longer. And we sometimes have to choose. No, I'm not going to grumble at this. I'm not going to moan at this. I'm just going to believe that my God can act on my behalf. And if we begin the process of murmuring and moaning and grumbling, let me just say to you that Israel's understanding of this was that the battle was lost. The battle is lost. We have to create a different way of winning. And the world's way of winning is to come out and fight. And our way of winning is to say, I'm going to trust you in this. I'm going to believe that you are my salvation. I'm going to believe you. And I'm not going to behave the way that the world does it. I'm not going to fight the way. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us. Our weapons are not their weapons. Our weapons are different. So we're going to be silent and say, my God is my deliverer. I'm going to believe you. I'm not going to moan against them, moan against God. I'm just going to trust. Now, I was taught this. I was taught when I was young about the doctrines of grace, and I was taught, I was taught about graces. So now I'm going to take you on a, a young person's doctrine from strict Baptist times, okay? Because how does this work? This is what my pastor used to say to me. Please bear with me, because we'll go with this. He used to say things like this. It is a grace to realize God's grace. It is a grace to realize that salvation is holy and fully from God. It is grace when you realize that our hope is in God. It's grace when we realize that he is our only hope. And our natural inclination if should be that we should run to him, that we should hope in him. It's a grace to realize that he alone can save us. Now, It isn't just grace that it's up here. We're going to need plenty of grace to be able to do this. William Plummer said this. He said, True piety finds itself in the fact that God is all-sufficient. And we have to be able to say in our hearts, through all these different things, that our God is all-sufficient. What about these enemies? No, our God is all-sufficient. You, you're all I need. You're, you're all I want. You're all I've ever wanted. Well, what about the enemies? There's this high guy and there's this low guy and he's a rat bag. And he, well, you know, now you're all that I want. And this has to be, if, if we want to know true victory, this has to be settled in our hearts. Has to be something that is done deep in our back to our soul. 
So often our relationship with God is sort of, well, I want him to do that for me. And when I, then he can do that. And then he can do this. And then when he's done that, what I can, well, then I will do this. And you have to say, no, we, I'm going to move from enemies and I'm going to say, you are my all-sufficient one. This is where David was moving. This is what my strict Baptist past would say is a work of grace. Grace in our heart. They know that God is all-sufficient. More than that, they declare it. They just tell him. And it's one, what I find the most moving and extraordinary things is people worshipping God when you know their condition. Because I can, I can do the happy worshipper thing, but what is outstanding from our position as elders sometimes is that you see somebody lost in wonder, love and God, and you know that they're going through this. Wow. This is the grace of God, that he is all-sufficient despite this is where we're moving to. This is where David is moving to. They know God. They see God in. He's all sufficient. Have you come to that point <laughs> in your Christian experiences when it's not about the tight experiences that you are in, but it's all about God still? That you and I are not defined by our circumstances, but we're defined by our God. That we're not defined by our enemies and the work of our enemies, but we're defined by the God in whom we serve. Who are we shaped by? Who is forming our thinking? Who causes us to, to say what we say, do what we do? You know, sometimes you have to say, Lord, I don't have a strategy for this. I don't have a plan for this. I don't have an answer for this. I don't have a defense about this. I don't even understand this. But I have you. I have you. This is the battle. You're the one I run to. You're the one I cling to. You're the only place that I can find my hope. That's the journey that David wants to take us. He basically wants us to learn just one simple thing. It is not about your enemies. It is never about your enemies. Secondly, <laughs> David's not done with us yet. If you look at the second part, verses 5 to 8, David now starts exhorting himself to be patient because God doesn't seem to be getting himself out of this pickle. Now hear this, guys. Because you love God, it doesn't mean that God has to get you out of this pickle. And that's the way you can, we can do it. We can sort of think, okay, Lord, uh, you are my all-sufficient one for this moment. Here I am. It's wonderful. I think you're great. I've put my hope in you. Why the blooming heck haven't you done it? That can be our sort of attitude. I've done it. You know. I was there on Sunday. I set the coffee up. I did all that. Not only did I set the coffee up, I served it. Why haven't you done it? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. Let me just say this. Some of you will be in a pickle for the rest of your life. I cannot promise you 
that what you are asking for will be delivered by God. And David knew that. David did not know that his enemies would not conquer him. David was prepared to say, if my enemies conquer me or no, I will worship you. That's a good thing to settle in our hearts. But having said that, if he's, if he's silent in the first part and he doesn't murmur, then in this part, he's, he then says something else to settle in his heart. And this is that he will be patient in hope in a, for a sovereign God to act. So you can see this uh, in verses 5 to 7. Firstly, he addresses himself, my soul. That's David's way of saying, self, listen. You know, and sometimes, I don't know whether you'd... If you are one of these people that, like me, that chunter, which of course you're not, I am a chunterer, an eternal chunterer, which will be delivered from heaven. Why are you chuntering the things that you do? This is what David says to chunter about. So David says, okay, if you're going to chunter, chunter to yourself the right thing. So he chunters and he says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Now I want you to notice that David is preaching a two-point sermon to himself. Here's the first one, wait. It's the worst word that you can say. You can have people come and counsel and say, I want this from the Lord. And you go, okay, wait. And they go, bush. It's that sort of thing. Can you imagine? It's just what happens. But hear the word of the Lord. For some of us, it will be wait. Be patient. Wait for God to appear. Wait for him to deliver. Wait for him to answer prayer. Wait for him to show. Why is he asking why, why is he coming to this? Why is he telling himself this? It's quite simple, because God is God and you is not. Because if you were ruler, you would have yourself in a big yacht in the Mediterranean right now, wouldn't you? Lord, I a well, big yacht, big house, swimming pool, all those sort of things, little fishes going around in pot, all that sort of stuff. No, because that's what we were. Can you imagine how the world would be if we let you be God? you let me be God, the wolves would have won the European Cup. But they are not. And there are lots of things like that. You would all speak with a beautiful accent like mine. This is how I would rule and that sort of stuff. (laughs) But it's true, isn't it? And it's really interesting that God comes and says, wait. Doesn't that make you stink? What? Wait. Yes. Wait. Why? He's God, you's not. It's worth settling in our hearts, isn't it? He's God, I'm not. I will do what he says, not what I think. You know, some of you haven't actually settled that yet. You've got a, like a list. Oh, you've got to do this, 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 the other. Then the Lord is wonderful. No, wait. Wait. Why are you being asked to wait? So that he can demonstrate who's in charge. You is not in charge here. He's in charge here. He boss, you not. You slave, he master. Just deal with it. It's really true. We sort of think, slave tell master what to do. No, slave not tell master what to do. Master tell, wait. If master comes says wait, you say as slave, yes, master. 
don't you? We do. And we're just going to get it into our weight. Weight. Are you hearing weight? Good. Second point. Therefore, second point. Let me just go back. Sorry. You know, lack of patience will actually rob you of a work of God in our lives. It will. It will get you irritated and grumpy. Secondly, second point for him, not only am I going to wait, I'm going to trust in him what at all times. I'm going to trust in him at all times. Here's his two-point sermon, preaching to himself. David, I need to wait and trust. That's the two-point sermon he's preaching. He's preaching patience. He's preaching faith. He's preaching to himself. He's saying, David, listen up, self. You've got to be patient. God's ways are not your ways. God's timing is not your timing. God's plan has not yet been revealed to you. He's going to use this circumstance to help you. Do you realize that why God hasn't done what what you want him to do is that God is not finished with you yet? That's the reason. That's the reason. So is your hope in him even if you have to wait? That's the issue. Oh. The issue is this, and that, Lord, if this happens or if this doesn't, I will trust in you fully at all times. That's where the journey is going. I will submit to you in this. Okay. God's plan. You're going to have to trust. Wow. You're going to have to believe. You're going to have to believe that he's wiser than you are. That he's more powerful than, he's cleverer than you. I've got a clever idea. I think we should do this. No, God's cleverer than you. Just have it in your mind. (laughs) You're going to have to believe in God's promises. But isn't it interesting that having focused on, uh, on those two verses, that David seems to have forgotten his enemies. Their enemies. Where did they go? Where have they gone now? They've occupied the previous verses, now they've gone. The answer to that is that your enemies come into focus when you lose yourself in God. That's what happens. He's lost in God. He's looking to God and therefore his enemies don't seem very much. Lose yourself in God. Will your enemies be many? Yes. Will your burdens be heavy? Yes. Will your temptations be formidable? Yes. What can you do? Lose yourself in God. Lose yourself in God. More than that, David's knowledge of God and his pathway to finding refuge in God is that he knows God. Now, I don't know whether Phil Harmon's sitting at the back because this is another strict Baptist lesson that I was taught. Are you still there, Phil? This is a really interesting thing that I was taught about two types of theology when I was little. I never really understood them. It went like this. It went that there was theology and proper theology. And I used to think, right, okay. So, I used to, and so the, the, the pastor used to say, this is theology. And then he used to go, and this is theology, proper theology. What I used to think was that proper theology was sort of like a higher thinking that only the pastor knew, and that one day when I grew up, I would come into it. 
that suddenly when I came into it, I would be like a sort of supersonic missionary that would be equipped for world. You know, because there was this theology and this proper theology. Here's what the, here's what the strict Baptist used, used to say about that. Here's what theology is. What you know about God. That's sort of in here. That's sort of, I've read this book. Dave Devonish, Terry Virgo, Phil Harmon. Read that, you know, Rupert the Bear. All that, I've read all these books. And it's sort of, you can tell them, the books, the books, and they're all peeled back. I know about God. What is proper theology? Proper theology is simply this, that I understand these things about God, therefore I do. It isn't just that I, I've got this great library, great library, really impressive. Proper theology says that you, you do the stuff. You don't, actually don't need a great big bookshop to do it. You could just do it. This is, what, this is what is being talked about here. What David is going through is he's talking about what, what he knows that has, that has shaped him and, and moved him and caught him. It's his proper theology. So he says, on God rests my salvation. I know it. I know it. My glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. I know it, therefore I do. Therefore, that's proper theology. Proper theology. So I want to ask you, what sort of theology is governing your life? Is it the sort of things that you sort of know about God? Or do you know God in such a way that it moves you to change? Moves the way... I want us to be people of proper theology. Having said all that with the two things about weight and trust, he then turns to you and me. What does David want to say to you and me? He says this in verse 8. Trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He's got a two-point sermon for you and me. And it is simply uh, this. He wants us to trust him and pour out our hearts to him. Trust him and pour out. Notice, interesting, that, he's, that we're not to murmur, we're not to groan, we're to trust him and pour out our heart before him. Now we're not silent. Now we're talking to God. Now we're bringing it before him. I just want to say this. Something. Some people here are, have had to face some huge, great things in their lives. And actually, the person that you haven't talked to is God. You've visited me and said, I've got this massive thing. Maybe I should just say, have you talked to God? Send you back and sort of say, come back, to, come back when you've spent a month telling God about this. Have you poured out your heart to him? Have you said all those things? To Don't say it to me and the, so that the other elders, well, we can have an action plan now. We can have a counseling plan. We can enable you. I'm not God. Neither is Steve, Phil Harmon, moving to... No. So we, 
we, we just sort of, you know, those, and we can do that, we can think, I, I've got this great thing, I've got this great vision, I've this great, oh, you're never going to sit there, great longing, that sort of thing that's happening. What I need to do is I need to gather the elders and my house group leaders, and I need to go and get ministry. So soon as what something happens is that suddenly you have one vague word that says, call of God, you go, that's me, and you run down here. And what if I said to the ministry team, send them back if they have not spent time with God for at least six months. Oh, okay. <laughs> We'd all be paddling back. But here's this thing. I'm going to trust God and I'm going to pour out to you my circumstances. You know, because of some of the circumstances that we, that for you, for people at Borderlands, you saw my daughter respond. It was an extraordinary thing. I want you to know that they came forward and said to me, would you like to weigh the prophecy about your own daughter? No. No. Not this. But I want you to know that Callie and I have prayed for our daughter for months and for years. For that moment. That moment was many, many tears of praying. We have cried, sobbed, wept, got angry, got fed up, all sorts of emotions to God to break through. You don't need to know the circumstances. You just need to know as parents, we have been there before God. And to see her calm lies, we just think, I've done it. But you know, sometimes we want effortless great things. And here's the two-point sermon. Trust God and tell him. Tell him. Have you told him, marrieds, let me just say this to you. You should be praying together all the time about all sorts of things that you are facing. It's no good saying, hey, you know, my husband reads the word. Oh, great. Love that he reads. Is he praying with you? Are you praying together? Is it, are you praying for your children, your grandchildren, your life together? Are you praying those sort of things? Are you getting together and saying, no, we won't watch Neighbours tonight. We will come before God and we'll bring our burdens before God that we are dealing with. This is what married life is about. You can't say to me, I've got this great vision, this great venture of God for us as a couple. When you as a couple have not poured out your heart to God. You have to get together. Get on your knees. Pray. The Bible says here, poured out to God. That's every emotion, every agony. Also, I'm pouring out singles. You're not excluded. You pour out to God. You've got to do it on your own, I'm afraid. But you can go and get a mate, can't you? Come, come with me. Let's spend an hour together. Let's, let's just share to one another what we are facing. But I've got this incredible situation about work. and I've got, Let's get together. Let's pour out our hearts to God. God, would you break through? Would you come? In your mercy, would you deliver us? It shouldn't be, oh, look, well, the marriage there. Except they've got somebody to pray. Go find somebody to pray with. But don't come to me and say, Nigel, I, I feel the great call of God to outer Mongolia. Does the wife know? No. But pour out your heart to God. Why are you not doing that? You expect great answers, but you know God doesn't know. Well, he does, but, he's so, but you know what I mean. There's a pouring out of heart to God. So David's sermon to himself. Patience, David. Trust God. Your sermon. Can't trust God and tell him. You know, you can't get away with this. 
Next Sunday's a ministry time. You're not going to come forward, are you? Because you know who you're going to get. It's pointless. Well, I've got this great vision. Have you told God? Well, I sort of mentioned it in the car driving. No, don't. Come on. Agony before God it is. That's how you know. That's how you know. Lastly, and I've got to be short. Be short, Lionel. Life's lesson for a fallen world from a communicating God. I couldn't think of anything else. In the last part of the sermon, we start talking about wicked men again. Look at these wicked men. They are of low estate. It says, those of low estate but breath, and those of high estate are delusion. In the balances they go up. They are lighter than breath. David is weighing up his foes that surround him. He's weighing them up. He's saying, there are ones that come into my life, they are of low estate. They are low lifers. How many people have... I know a low-lifer that's de- dealt with me like this. These are gutter people. There are some here of high estate, people that are around him, men of rank, power, position, that sort of stuff. David's getting the scales out to deal with both. And you can't see that because of the English language. He's sort of lost a little bit. But he's, he, he is doing that. And what, what David is saying is that as Christians, we need to have a scales. We sort of need to be walking around with it. iPad, scales. It's that sort of thing. That's, and you, are you doing that? Do you have in your left or your right hand scales? Now, every situation that you do, do you have your scales? You know, are, you, are you carrying them around? That sort of thing. And what David is saying is this, whether... Low or high, whether through domination or force, whether through control or manipulation, whether behind your back or in your face, evil is nothing. Why is that? Because they are weighed in the balance of God. So what we're doing is that we're taking these scales into every situation And when we're dealing with these different things, what we're doing is we're holding them out and so something happens to it. And you think, that was shocking. That was bad. So we go, scales. Okay, put that on there. And on this side we go, God. Not shocking. Okay. And we do, it's as simple as, that's what David is telling us to do. So take your scales. Take your scales. It will help you if you've got your scales. Perhaps you need to buy a pair, walk around with them. There's... If the phone answers, they go, clang, clang, go, and I go. But this, we, it's great, isn't it? But we do, we do sing these songs, and yet we, they are songs of scales. So we sing, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Our God is for us. Then who could ever stop us? Our God is with us. Then what could stand against us? We go, scales. Yes, that's true. But actually, in reality, we sing it. And we go, oh, yes, lovely scales. And we go, problem, bush. And it goes out. And we, we have to say, I'm going to be committed to taking some godly scales into all the situations that I that I have. I'm going to be a scales person. I'm going to carry them. You can buy some wonderful ones in these kitchen shops. They even have little handles on the top, in little cases. You, we should take them round. We'll have an offering. We'll call people for, come and get your scales. Just take them. Because tomorrow morning, you will need some scales in the situation you're in. 
Because something will happen where you put it on the scales and it'll go, bush! And you'll go, no, what is happening to me? My life has fallen, my life's a wreck, it's all gone wrong, it's all chaos. What on earth has happened to me? Unless you have the scales and go, no, God, okay, right, okay, boom. And that's what happens. You listen to what he says. He says, here's the truth I want to tell you. Power belongs to God. Isn't that, I love this because it says, he first, he first says, twice I heard this. Why does David say twice I heard this? It's quite simple really. The first thing is he didn't listen to the first time either. And there are some that are here this morning that have heard truths and you haven't listened the first time. And here's the grace of God to David. Here it is again. Power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. You, you look around the world. Do you think that power belongs to God? Don't, don't give me the theological nod. Give me the proper nod. The proper theology nod. Do you believe... No, no, not so sure. It's true, isn't it? These are the scales things. Look at it. Look at the world. Does power belong to God or does it belong to the Supreme Court in London? Well, actually, it belongs to the Supreme Court in London. Does it belong to God or does it belong to the human court of human rights? Well, actually, it appears that it belongs to the... Does it belong to God or does it belong to the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation? Well, I think it belongs to... North, uh, you know, does it belong to God... Or does it belong to the terrorist organisations? Well, actually, they seem to have the, the power here. Does it belong to God or, or does it belong to evil in Wrexham and Oswestry and Deeside? Well, actually, it's sort of, yeah. Does it belong to God or, do, you know, can God triumph in Libya? And in our minds, we're like this. And David says, I've heard a truth. And I didn't listen to it to the first time. So now I'm going to listen. Power belongs to God. David is surrounded by, by evil people. And the truth is this. Are you fooled by appearances? Don't be. Don't be. Power belongs to God. Remember what, was, what Jesus said? All authority has been given to him in what? In heaven and on earth. And he does this. I don't, if we need to grasp this. If we believe that, sal- that salvation works and the gospel works, then it comes from this thing. God is all-powerful. Well, I'm a little bit timid. and All-powerful. No, no, all-powerful. I love the, the sense of it. Here's the second truth, verse 12. Uh, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. If you're going to trust in God, then we need to know two things. One is power. The other one is reassurance. <laughs> His love for you. There it is. His love for you. And this is the way that he describes it in regard to the scales, and we'll finish on this. Our enemies, our fallen world, with all our difficult situations, are measured up by the scales. But if you look at it in the latter purpose, the way that David does this, is that he puts all the situations on the one side. 
And then he puts the power and the steadfast love on the other side. And uh, once he puts Jesus on the bottom, uh, on this side, it sort, of, it sort of drops it down like this. And it keeps going until it's flat on the ground. The weight of the power and the steadfast love pushed the scales to the ground, squashed to the ground. And we have to know that that cannot change. It is impossible. That the scales that you and I walk around with are those scales. The only thing that changes us is here. David holds the scales and he says, he says, power and steadfast love. And he goes, his enemies, oh, they're up in the air. <laughs> look at them. Don't they look a bunch of idiots? And it's true. It's true. And I want to ask you right now, just in conclusion, I want to ask you, what are you looking at right now? How big is it? How awesome is it? Now, take a scales. Take them in your, in your mind's eye. Hold them up. Put this on it. Place it on it right now. And then I want you to put God's power on this side and his steadfast love and ask yourself, how does it look right now? How does it look? How is it? How is it for you? Now I want to ask you, you know, will we be able to plant a church into D-side? Okay, let's put D-side on this side. Now let's put power and let's put steadfast love. Okay? <coughs> okay? That's that done then. Okay. Now let's look at Oswestry. Pagans. Pah. <laughs> let's put Oswestry over here. Okay. Let's put, you know, God's power and his steadfast love over there. Oh, that's Jesus up in the air. No, of course it isn't. Bam! Jesus. And we have to do it. We have to do it from the personal to the thing. We have to do this. So I want to ask you, will you stand with me? Will you stand with me and say, I am now prepared to walk with the scales that David did and apply them to my life? Amen? Amen.